Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Drinking Well, a podcast by Barry Brothers and Rudd with me, Barbara Drew. Today, I'm sitting down with Tara Field, one of our account managers, to discuss changing wine styles, building the perfect wine cellar and Barbaresco. Tara, welcome. Hello. This is your very first time on a podcast, is that right? It is. And we are sat today in our born room. So listeners who haven't been to number three St. James's Street might be unaware that there is a huge array of rooms here at this one address. And the Bourne Room is actually named after our founder, a lady called the Widow Bourne, who set up a shop on this spot in 1698, selling originally tea and coffee. So Tara, did you know when you joined the company that it was founded by a woman? I'll be honest, I didn't. Me neither. Okay. (laughs) I feel like that's something that we should perhaps draw out of our archives a little bit more. Before we get into the wines, and you've brought a really delicious Italian wine along today for us to taste, tell me a little bit about your background in the wine trade. How did you start in wine and where did you go before you ended up here? Well, wine is sort of second or third iteration of a career, if you want to call it that. I discovered wine when I was out in Australia about 20 years ago and fell in love with all the different wine regions and made it part of my travels to go and visit all the different regions. And then went back to my home, which was Malta at the time, and realised that at the time there was probably not very much to do with wine over there. So I went into hotels and hospitality side of things. And then about 15 years later, did an introductory wine course in a West London school and absolutely got the bug and fell in love with it and decided that that wasn't enough. But I ended up going down to what is Plumpton College and being completely enamoured by the blue sky and the beautiful hills. Blue sky? Can we just tell listeners where Plumpton College is? In Sussex. Okay. So yes, it was a a wonderful sunshiny day at, at the time and I decided to go back to studying and did my wine business degree at Plumpton College. After that, I started working through an internship for another company and then found myself at Berries a few years later. So wine has been a passion for a long time, but something that I've really only concentrated on in the last 10 years or so from my studies onwards. That's a wonderful sort of meandering journey and the experience you must have picked up along the way is astonishing. I think it's probably solidified over the last five or six years working with berries. I mean the the breadth of wines that we get to taste and offer and be able to share with our customers means that we're in a really privileged position to be able to try different regions and different vintages as well as a lot of new vintages so you get a feel for what each year feels like and I think that's hugely beneficial in being able to give advice to customers. Tell me a bit about your wine business degree. What sorts of things did you cover? Because I find, I mean, I'm a complete wine nerd and I find the wine industry itself 
really fascinating. Did you learn about how the industry was put together? And um, was it more about sort of business management? It was a bit of both. We did a sparkling winemaking uh, module as part of it. Gosh, so did you get to make your own cuvee? We, did, we didn't, no, but I did get to crush some grapes at some point by feet, which was only just an experiment. That's definitely not what goes into Plumpton's wines. But I also did the business side of it and looking at the retail side versus the collecting side, as well as doing the tasting because we had the option to do the diploma alongside the degree if we wanted to as well, which I did start while I was there. Good grief. Really, really thorough grounding. It was, yes. Very interesting. What fascinates me, because I'm, I'm particularly passionate about education in the wine and spirits industry, is that many people in the industry and at Berry Brothers and Rudd as well have come from such varied backgrounds Mm. and so they have to study wine it's almost like studying a second language really I think for me it was I didn't really know how to get into it without going back to studying and feeling like it gave me a launch pad and the opportunity to attend tastings and trade tastings and be able to speak to people in the trade and without having that background I felt at the time that I would have struggled to be able to get through the doors of wine, to be quite honest. So yeah, Plumpton was very much a springboard into the world of wine. There is so much to learn when you first start working in wine or indeed start collecting and building your cellar. And it certainly can feel quite overwhelming, I think, with the regions, but also understanding the different processes, understanding how wines react in different situations, Mm -hmm. how they age. And it can perhaps, to the untrained observer, look as though the wine trade is beautiful bottles opened over a microphone for a podcast and perhaps a, a lunch to go with it. But actually the amount of expertise and that really detailed knowledge of the regions that so many people in the wine trade have built up I think that's really where we can add value for our customers. Completely agree. I think it's certainly a journey that I'm still on. There's so much to learn. And I think it's very difficult when you have a lot of areas that you want to learn about to hone in on one. Having said that, Italy is an area that is close to my heart for many reasons. So it's one that I just genuinely love the wines of. Growing up in Malta, it was a region that you had more accessibility to. So that was an area that has piqued my interest in particular. But I must admit, I'm a lover of most wines rather than of one in particular, to be quite honest. It's been a wonderful journey to be able to explore that and to be able to gain the knowledge along the way to pass it on to customers. Are there any wines made in Malta at all? There are. There are quite a few. There's a few that have done very well and are slowly trying to break onto the international market, but it is quite difficult. There's a number that have actually taken on the task of really wanting to to make top-level fine wines. So they're very small production, but they are trying to do that. I'm going to have to seek some out for my cellar. So tell me, what is your role at Barry Brothers and Rudd and what, what does your typical day look like? Is there such a thing as a typical day? Sort of, yes. <laughs> so my role is an account manager. I work in the fine wine and spirits team. Primarily, it's to help customers. So from the seller plan side of things, I would help customers in terms of adding a case to their seller if I feel that it matches what they're looking for, possibly giving them a nudge saying, look, you know, I think this is really worthwhile wine for your seller. Then it also comes down to meetings, whether that's one-to-ones or lunches or dinners that we have organized through berries. And also just to sort of have a relaxed environment, actually in this room, funnily enough, in the 
the born room most times to just get them to meet up with other people who are interested in wine as well. So there's, it's just sort of building up a little bit of a connection because there are people who have a, a real passion to want to learn. And sometimes it's nice because you've got people in the room for the same reason. And there are instances where they, they meet up after that and form a connection and a network as well. It's a bit of a varied day. There are obviously things like dealing with deliveries and exports and things like that. And it's lovely because it means that no two days are really ever the same. I think I have yet to speak to someone at Barry Brothers and Rudge where their role involves two days being exactly the same. I think the variety in the wine trade is one of the charms. So you say that you help customers to build their cellar based on what they might like. Tell me a bit more about that process. How do you go about planning what to put in a customer's cellar and what they might like give us an insight into how that works I think it's very much a collaborative process so um, obviously customers um, who are looking to do this have got a, a mind of what they'd like their wines to be in their cellar in some instances they give us full autonomy to do that through the cellar plan they sort of say I'm, I'm still learning so I'm very happy to have your input and these are the areas and the regions that I've been interested in so far sometimes it can just be a region rather than knowing any wines in particular and actually sometimes even that can feel a bit daunting so it comes down to well what wines have you tasted recently that you like and then that gives us a springboard to look into the regions and the styles of wines that they're enjoying so that helps me to gain an insight into what they're looking for other times it's very much they know what they're looking for and they have specific ideas of what vintages they would like to have and what regions they would like to have and they're quite active in pursuing that so there's a broad spectrum of knowledge I would say within our customer base and then that's quite interesting because I'm still learning as well so sometimes if I'm asked to go and buy some back vintages it's quite nice because I'm learning something about a vintage in a region in particular I'm trying to educate as well along the way. Can you tell us a little bit more about this process of buying back vintages why is that important when you're building a cellar what does it add to your cellar well I think it also depends on how soon you'd like to approach the cellar if you're thinking about approaching a cellar in three to five five to ten ten plus years if you're obviously not looking to touch it for the next ten plus years then having younger vintages helps you because you're able to lay them down for a little bit longer whereas if you're looking to approach a cellar in the nearer term five years or so some vintages just need a little bit more time and it means that having that opportunity to be able to buy back vintages means that you have the accessibility to older wines which are ready for drinking sooner essentially it's a bit of a mix obviously there are some wines that are made to be drunk a little bit younger and there are some vintages that are also slightly lighter versus others so it's It's a question of finding that balance of having the bolder vintages which are going to need a little bit longer to lay down versus the slightly more approachable vintages and then back vintages which also allow you to have something a little bit sooner to to drink in your cellar and whet your appetite for what's coming along a little bit further down the line as well. And I think it's interesting because over the last 10 years at least the style of a number of wines is changing as well. So if you don't have the back vintages you're almost missing out on a, a period of history as well where I think there's a little bit of change that we're seeing happening especially with climate change over the last 10 years and the way that the wines are being made so I think it's a lovely way of being able to see the past and the present and the future over the next five to seven years. I love that description I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it and you're absolutely right if you look at many of the classic wine producing regions the wines are simply different to what they were 30 years ago if you look at Bordeaux as an example the weather has got considerably warmer Mm -hmm. great are now consistently ripe. 
when they're picked, which might sound ridiculous, but, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you simply couldn't guarantee that your grapes would fully ripen every year. And now we're in a situation where some grapes might be too ripe. And of course, advances in the winery mean that wine is perhaps made in a slightly different way. I mean, they have these, not to get too technical, but wonderful machines called optical sorters, which will take a picture of every single grape. And if it's not perfect, if it's not within the specifications that you put into that machine, a little puff of air will simply blow it off the conveyor belt and it will not go into your wine. And that level of precision is just something that we didn't see 20 years ago. And I think it translates into the vineyards as well. You know, that level of detail that they're going to shade the grapes where needed and ensure that they're not doing green harvest sometimes or they are doing a green harvest and things like that. So that's where they'll remove some of the bunches from the vine to perhaps encourage the vine to um, really ripen those bunches which are left and give all of the flavour to the few bunches which are remaining. Very much so and also just attending to the soil and realising how important it is to have that biodiversity angle in the vineyard as well. So I think that married with what they're doing in the winery which is probably a little bit more hands-off, I would say, in most instances nowadays, to really let the terroir shine through. What we're finding is that the quality of the wine that's being produced in most regions nowadays is probably the best it's ever been because in a number of instances, they're really honing their craft to a level that we possibly haven't seen before. I know that uh, there is a tendency in the wine trade to get very misty-eyed when talking about these incredible old vintages and we're lucky enough to work in an industry with access to some of these old bottles and what strikes me every time I taste a wine from perhaps the 1980s is not how remarkably preserved it is because they generally are but it's almost that these wines have defied the Mm -hmm. odds the wines that you can taste from the 80s or even earlier which are still delicious they are very much the exception to the rule whereas now it's the reverse most wines are absolutely delicious they are well made perhaps it's more a consideration of personal style not buy this wine because it's the only good wine made in the vintage but actually what stylistically are you looking for for your cellar And I think that in itself is an ever-changing path as well. I certainly, when I first came into the wine trade, had my opinions of what I did and didn't like, and that's evolved very much since then. And I think what I've realised is that over time, your tastes do change, and there's no harm in that. And it doesn't mean that you don't enjoy what you first started with, but it means that certainly in my case, my breadth of wine has changed and grown in terms of what I enjoy. I think that's a real privilege to have that opportunity to do that. And that's also something that's nice with BBX is that if you don't like or you've decided you've maybe bought too much of something that you're (laughs) not drinking as much nowadays there is a way of being able to sell it on if you wanted to as well but the nice thing is that you can wait a little bit you don't have to do that straight away and your tastes might turn around again so you just a bit of a windy path I would say more than anything. Do you have any advice for those who are starting wine collections with that in mind understanding that your tastes might change how should you build that into your cellar? I think it very much depends on the customer and what they're looking to achieve to be quite honest if it's a question of buying 
to learn, then I would say having a, a case of wine from many different regions, red and white. There's this sort of notion that we don't possibly lay down whites as much. I'm not saying to, to put every white away in the cellar for the next five to ten years, but certainly there are a few that Premier Cruz and Grand Cruz, from example, from Chablis and from other places in the world, which you can... We might have to edit that out because Premier Cru Chablis is one of my favourite <laughs> under-the-radar secrets. Yes. And if too many people hear about it, it's going to be difficult to get hold yes, of. So, I totally um... agree. So it very much depends, going back to that, on what they're looking to achieve. Obviously, if they've got a few regions in particular that they want to focus on, then I would say, let's focus on those. But there might be a, a situation where I say, actually, I think it's really worth you having a case of this. And I know you you like this style of wine. And this is slightly different, but it's worthwhile having because it's just, it's wonderful and we've tasted it recently and just trust me I guess is the answer there but hopefully because I'm buying it as well along the way it means that I'm I'm definitely endorsing it. You mentioned a little earlier part of your role is sending out offers yes. so tell me about that if you've got a parcel of wine how many bottles how many cases might you have access to? I think it depends on the region. For example, with Bordeaux, we're going through Bordeaux on Primeur season at the moment, and some wines are quite readily available. The vintage was a little bit larger than last year's. There is a little bit more wine available, but certainly the wines at the top end are highly sought after, so we may not be able to fulfil all our requests that we have already, and that's very much done on an allocation, possibly on a previous buyer basis as well. If you look at other regions like Burgundy, we're short supply and scarce to begin with so it is quite difficult for most levels it's not to say that there isn't any wine but certainly for the top names and the top vineyards it is a lot more difficult and we have to make some very difficult decisions about where we draw the line i think if you look at places like the new world australia argentina for reds in particular and actually some really wonderful high altitude whites nowadays and chardonnays they're probably a little bit more readily available it's not to say that the others aren't but obviously Bordeaux, we have a lot of different wines and I think it just depends on what you're looking for, to be quite honest. So one of the regions that you are particularly passionate about yeah. is Italy and specifically Piedmont. Italy is quite a large and varied country when it comes to wine and you have brought along beautiful bottle. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what sure. you've brought and we'll then open it up? So I've brought uh, a Luigi Giordano Barbaresco, uh, 2019 from the vineyard called Cavanna. Luigi Giordano was a bit of an eye-opener when we went over to Piedmont July before last on a knowledge trip. Italy had a bit of a place in my heart because it's a place I used to visit quite a lot and in particular Sicily when I was a child. So I have an affinity to Italy. For me, Barbaresco and Barolo are just, they're incredible wines. They can feel a little bit difficult for some people because they've got quite high tannin and that's the tannin in the Nebbiolo grape. But I think if you are happy to sort of overcome that or try a few different wines, then you'll find that there are a few different styles within the Barolo and Barbaresco region. Well, I have to say to begin with, it's just beautiful. I mean, it's a region that's just stunning. We went in July when it was a rather warm, but just <laughs> glorious time going around in, in a car and just be greeted by these very, very hospitable vignerons who just wanted to show us what they had. And so we, we arrived at Luigi Giordano, which is um, now run by fourth generation Matteo. I'll be honest, it's quite a simple winery. There's no real bells and whistles to it. They're a team of three. Wow. 
him, his girlfriend and his mum. And they manage everything from the vineyards through to the marketing side of it. So it's quite a small operation. And his father, or should I say his great-grandfather, was one of the first to start bottling in 1958. So estate bottling This is estate bottling. Tell me a little bit about how this wine is, is made, sort of the philosophy. Sure. So extremely traditional in the way that they uh, they approach it. So they have long macerations, which means that they allow the grapes to be sitting in the tank for a long period of time. And that allows for them to extract the tannins and the flavors and aromas from those grapes over a, a long period of time, 25 to 30 days, Wow, which is quite a long time. And part of that is to extract all of the Nebbiolo flavors, which is the grape that the wine is produced from. And then they age it for two years in large barrels, which are called Grande Botte. And that also allows the wine to settle and, and the tannins to round off and make them a little bit more approachable. And because they are old oak barrels, they don't give a lot to the wine. It's very much more about allowing the wine to settle and to age itself and to knit itself together. In this particular case, this wine is a single vineyard. So in Barolo and Barbaresco, there's a slight affinity to Burgundy in the way that they make their wine. So they have now got what they were, are calling individual crews as well. So Cavanna is a small vineyard. Giordano has two hectares, which is about two thirds of the vineyard. And they're one of the few to actually put the vineyard name on the label because they feel that it has the quality to, to allow it. To, to shine as a, as a single vineyard as well. This is a 2019. This was actually a wine that we tasted uh, in situ. And I have to say, everybody in the room was quite blown away by just the lightness of touch and the, the beautiful floral and really pretty aromatics that we were getting, even when it was quite so young. So it was one today that I thought would be nice to discuss because it, it was just an incredible experience. And I can guarantee every single one of us in the car that day bought a case because <laughs> it was one that we thought was just magical to be quite honest. Well, you've really sold it to me, so I do think sure. we should get this open now. <laughs> so I can have a taste. Thank you. Yep. So the first thing I notice here, I mean, the colour is incredible, beautiful, pale cherry colour. The aromas, and there's a real intensity of red fruit there. Very much so. I, I pick up a lot of cherry at the moment. Yeah. And- Bit of cranberry, something a little bit herbal, yes. but then a lovely floral character yeah. as well. Very, very delicate. And I love that there's almost, in a, in a nice way, a slightly savoury element to it, which I think you can possibly say is more from the herbal side of things. It's just got a great, well, for me, it's inviting you in to want to drink it, to be honest, straight away. A hundred percent. Honestly, I smell this and my first thought is, wow, that is absolutely delicious, incredibly appealing, and I want to drink it right now. And I think that that's really important to note. This is a 2019 Barbaresco. And so often people will say to me, oh, but you have to age Barbaresco and Barolo for at least 10 years. You couldn't possibly open them when they're, what, four and a half years old. But to me, the aromas here say, no, you absolutely can. And it doesn't mean to say that it won't drink and it won't be, you know, be approachable in 10 years time. And I think the shame on that would be that you'd miss it in its lovely sort of really fruity stage. Now, I'm not going to say in every single vintage, 2019 is possibly one that you could hold back a little bit. It's the first in a trio of really good vintages. It's 
probably got more structure to it. And certainly Matteo at the time was saying for him, it's, it's very similar to 2016, which I'm sure our listeners know a little bit about because we've spoken about it a lot by now. But 2016 was a fantastic vintage for Italy and one that we have said really lasts for decades. So 19 and, you know, only a few years old, you're definitely getting more of the fruit profile more than anything else. And I think what's lovely about Barolo and Barbaresco is that you have this beautiful savoury element that just slowly comes to the fore as they age a little bit. But what's lovely is to catch them at their different stages. So if you catch it more on the fruit side, you know, as it gets a little bit older, you have a little bit more of that tar and leather, which sounds bonkers, but I promise it tastes wonderful to go with it. Let's have a taste then. Mm, That's really beautiful. The fruit and the floral aromas on the nose really come through onto the palate. It's very mouthwatering. So Nebbiolo is one of those grapes that has lots of acidity, does make your mouth water. It's one of the reasons why these wines are so very good with food. Yes. Yes, there is quite a bit of grip there um, from the tannins. For me, they don't dominate. And I think that tannins are sort of a bit of a personal preference. Mm -hmm. I mean, texture. I know some people who are very, very particular about certain fabrics that they will wear and they can, you know, they can pick up a seam at 20 paces. They don't like the feel of it. And there are other people who are perhaps slightly less sensitive to that. Um, And I do think the same is true for wine and for tannins. Some of our listeners may just really focus on the flavours and they notice the tannins, but perhaps aren't bothered by them. There will be other people who are just very sensitive to this grippy, astringent texture and sensation, and they really won't want to drink these wines too young before the tannins have fully softened. I think also it's worth mentioning that the tannins have changed somewhat over the last few years, and that's because of the ripeness that they're getting in the grapes as well. So whereas before you were probably right to hold on to Barolo for a little bit longer or Barbaresco because you didn't have the sort of softer tannin profile that you have nowadays. I'm not to say that this is velvety to start with. This is definitely not the case. This is very much still a, a tannic wine, but the profile of the tannin, which is probably a little bit difficult to describe, is softer overall as the way it, it, it sort of affects your palate. It's not as drying to me on the immediate consumption of the wine. You can feel it across the mouth, but it doesn't take your mouth out, let's put it that way. Definitely. Yeah, I would say the tannins are, are much less angular than you might find in a... Um, much better put. A <laughs> slightly um, more traditional a wine that was made even 10 years ago. And I think that comes back to what we were saying earlier, that no matter the region, winemaking, even with the best will in the world has changed. The nature of the grapes has changed and the wines themselves as a result have changed. And I think they have become better. Our understanding of what happens in the vineyard, of what happens in the winery has improved, Mm -hmm. but there is this evolution. Wine, like everything else, doesn't stay still. Each year, it's another step in the evolution of these regions. The single vineyard nature of the wine is also another example of evolution here because of course that's a relatively new development in this part of the world isn't it? Yes I think Barolo was the main starter of that and it was very much the Barolo boys movement if you want to call it that that decided that they were going to try putting single vineyards together and following Burgundy because the tradition is very much to blend across the region across the vineyards they feel that each different component brings a different side to the wine and I think nowadays you have both camps, you have those that are still quite staunchly traditional and blend, and then you have those that will produce single vineyards because they feel that they want to 
to show that terroir and the slight nuances that that terroir brings to the wine. And then they will also do their traditional Barolo, which will be a, a blend from their vineyards as well. I think it's really interesting to see where the region is going and very much the more modernist approach, which was using the French oak and the smaller barrels. That is still present, but I think there's been a meet in the middle almost in some instances where people have basically just decided that both work and it's very much down to preference and taste of how you like your Barolo or your Barbaresco. I think Barbaresco is also slightly different in that there aren't as many well-known small producers. So Gaia was, um, Angelo Gaia was the main proponent from Barbaresco and he really put them on the map as a fine wine to sort of go after and to look for and he has very much been the champion of the region and then you have the consortium which is uh, Prodotori del Barbaresco and they were formed in 1958 as well and they were very much about trying to produce quality wine from a consortium of growers that wanted to work towards that focus so for Matteo's great-grandfather to go out on his own and actually feel that his wines were up there to be able to be drunk along these wines was quite a big thing to do at the time, to, to then start estate bottling and to feel that he could produce wines to compete with that. So I think it's um, quite an interesting story. You mentioned the Prodotore del Barbaresco, which is essentially a cooperative. Now I'm a big fan of cooperative made wines because of course you do need quite a lot of land and quite a lot of grapes to make a decent volume of wine to make it commercially viable. So this is something we've seen in, you know, in France, in Champagne, in Chablis, there are some really fantastic cooperative made wines, but it's particularly strong in Italy. Are we seeing a move away from that, do you think, in in this region? It's not a huge amount of hectares overall in Barbaresco, and I, people are seeing that, that they can forge their own path, but that it's difficult and it takes a lot of time. So there is still a, a feeling that the, the Prodotori, they've got a great person at the helm and are doing great things to show that there is real quality to be had there. So I think there's a bit of both, to be very honest with you. There are certain people that are breaking out on their own. And certainly Barbaresco as a region, I think the vineyards are a little bit more accessible. If you wanted to do that in terms of looking for vineyards, that's not to say that it's easy to find the, the vineyards that you're looking for, but possibly in Barolo, it's already that that time has passed and it's actually it's quite expensive and it's quite difficult to get in whereas with Barbaresco there's still an element of if you are a vigneron that wants to make wine for example Fletcher who used to make wines at Chiretto and has now gone off on his own. So just background here this is Dave Fletcher who is an Australian he is not a local Italian at all. No but Barbaresco is an area that he's basically buying parcels from and looking to make his own wines from and it's interesting to see that there are also winemakers who are making wines in Barolo, looking to start up their own smaller venture in Barbaresco because it is a little bit more accessible. And there's a balance of both. And these are winemakers who are working at some of the top estates. They're obviously looking for the quality and they're finding it there, but the accessibility is is what's allowing them to get in and, and to start producing wine as well. Again, many parallels with Burgundy there, I think. So I think we both agree this is absolutely delicious now. What I would like to know is the case in your cellar, <laughs> when are you planning on opening that? Are you well, going to keep it for 
10 years, 15 years, or are you going to go home this evening and open it up? So first of all, I bought two. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, I bought one in magnum format and one in bottle format. And the reason for that is it's my daughter's birth year. So uh, there is a small affinity for me to want to be able to share wines with her a little bit further down the line. And obviously magnum format will allow us to hopefully uh, slow the aging process down a little bit and she'll be able to drink it on her 18th birthday or, or thereabouts. And then the other case is for me to enjoy for myself throughout the next sort of five, seven, ten years or so. But one will definitely be kept until she's a little bit older and she will be able to drink it with me. So that's I think and then that's why sometimes it's nice to buy two, one to hold on to and one to try and explore. Because I think I've, I don't know about you, but I've certainly done it where I've pulled a few bottles out of my cellar and realized, oh, possibly a little bit too early and left it aside and then gone back to it a couple of years later and gone, OK, I'll try one now and gone, oh, maybe it's starting to to hit the its stride and then go, okay, well, I know to leave it now for a few more years and then go back to it. And before you know it, you're already four bottles down and there's only two bottles left. So it's a quite a nice way of being able to, to experience it over the next five to 20 years. That's a really important point, actually. It's important to note that aging of bottles of wine, it, it's not an exact science. No. And even with you know decades of experience and huge amounts of knowledge, there is a bit of an element of try it and see and sometimes you think oh gosh yes actually that's that's not aging quite the pace that I thought it would and so being willing to to dip in to experiment to try some bottles and just see how they're getting on is quite important. I might add that this is readily accessible at the moment it might not be in 20 years time so I'll be glad to have had two cases in the cellar at the time which is the case with some regions too you know 20 years ago it was probably quite easy to pick up some burgundies which nowadays are almost impossible so I think certainly Barolo and Barbaresco and there are other regions within Italy like Brunello in Tuscany which are very much on the up in my opinion and rightly so because the quality is there and I think as those who've known about them for a while will tell you that you know they've always been great wines and it's just it's taken a little while for it to become more widely known let's put it that way in terms of different experiences that you can have with these wines as well. So as we start to wrap things up I would love to know your secret piece of wine trade advice that you give your friends that you give to collectors to be very honest with you it's buy what you love try something different ask questions you know that's what we're here for we're here to answer any queries that you might have and certainly experiment I guess if you are open to trying different wines then I I would you know certainly say that our own selection wines are a great way into looking at different regions and if it's something that you like the idea of then you like the taste of more than anything that's a great way to start and then you can certainly buy a few bottles in our London shop or Basingstoke shop and then building up on that or even trying a case of BBX because that would be a way of being able to try a case that is well aged and you'll know whether or not you'll like what you're tasting and whether you would like to take that forward as well. It's really just being open-minded to the different regions because I think we can get stuck in the idea that it's got to be Burgundy, it's got to be Bordeaux, it's got to be these main stalwarts. And there's a reason for that because they're fantastic regions and they should absolutely be in everyone's cellars if possible. But there are also other regions which I think are absolutely worthwhile being explored as well. And what's your one guilty wine pleasure? drinking a bottle to myself because I know how good it is but you know it's uh, possibly not sharing sometimes or maybe sharing with my husband but sometimes it's just lovely to be able to get a nice piece of meat or fish and choose a nice bottle of wine and enjoying the experience and 
and just having it for the two of us at home. And that really is something that I, I love doing. And I guess just enjoying picking up different wines when I'm abroad and trying different things. I went to Portugal not so long ago and there are a number of wines from Portugal that we don't have over here. And a friend of mine who was taking me into the wine shop got very enthusiastic at being able to show me lots of different wines, which the merchant was very, very happy to assist with. So it was, you know, interesting to try a few things there as well. And just, yeah, being open to different areas, I guess. I should never share my guilty wine pleasure with you because (laughs) yours sounds really... Oh, go on. Very civilised. Come on. <laughs> That's for another episode. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. My thank pleasure. you very much for sharing your expertise and your enthusiasm for Italian wines and this absolutely beautiful bottle, which I think is going to evolve um, really nicely over the next few hours in glass. I agree. Um, even I look forward to tasting that a little bit later on today. Cheers. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Drinking Well, a podcast by Barry Brothers and Rudd. If you'd like to browse the producers mentioned in today's podcast, visit bbr.com slash podcast. Or if you're interested in starting your own fine wine collection with Barry Brothers and Rudd, all the information you need can be found on bbr.com slash collecting. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening. I'm off to hunt down some single vineyard Barbaresco for my cellar. Cheers.